Thank you, Kathy. Today is Transfiguration Sunday, so you might be wondering why I chose an Exodus text instead of the Matthew text. I promise we'll get to that. But first, I want to talk about Moses' trip up to Mount Sinai to receive Torah, which we most often and somewhat erroneously call the law. The passage you just heard marks a transition in that book, inhabiting a space between the ethical demands of Torah, which is to say living life in community with God and others, and the contemplative posture that we are to take to the Most High, which follows this text. After Moses and the elders teach the people what the Holy One wants their community to look like, and the people covenant with God and one another to do those things, God calls to Moses, saying, Come up to me on the mountain and wait. So the whole community heads toward Mount Sinai, and Moses instructs the people to obey Aaron and Hur. And then Moses goes up to the mountain, and the cloud signifying God's presence covers it. Moses waits. For six days, he waits. For six days, Moses is being prepared to encounter the living God. For six days, God and Moses lay the groundwork for what is to come. And on the seventh day, a new beginning. Neither Moses nor Israel would ever be the same again. On the seventh day, the comforting, covering cloud is transfigured into a consuming fire on the top of the mountain, at least in the sight of Israel. But for Moses, meeting God means walking into the cloud where God is, the very presence of the Holy One of Israel. Those six days were just the beginning for him, just a taste of what it meant to be near God and to experience the presence once more. We are not told precisely how those 40 days look for Moses. All we know is that for 40 days and 40 nights, the patriarch is with the Lord, creating a blueprint for a nation. Forty days and forty nights, God teaches Moses what it means to be in good, healthy relationship among humans and with the holy. The Ten Commandments are a beginning of that teaching, a way of evidencing the way that we are to interact with one another and the Creator. Moses had heard from God, go up on the mountain, and on the mountain received a vision for the future. William Joseph Danaher Jr. writes, The clear purpose of this passage is to integrate the ethical ear and contemplative eye in Exodus. That is to say, there is in this passage an emphasis on hearing God's voice, and in Exodus this audio metaphor is connected to obedience. Hence, the passage begins with God speaking to Moses and his companions. The ascent itself is an act of obedience and one called for by the word of God. Later, however, the metaphor shifts from audio to visual. Moses ascends the summit alone and beholds the appearance of, quote, the glory of the Lord, 
which was like a devouring fire on the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. In this way, the ascent, which begins as an ethical act of obedience, is transformed into a contemplative attempt to look into realms beyond human knowing. When Moses comes down from the mountain, he is changed and more than changed. He's transfigured. The definition of transfiguration is to be transformed into a more beautiful or spiritual state. How could Moses have been anything but lovelier after spending time in the presence of God? After learning how best to love and be loved? And so we see how transfiguration is about more than just looking different. For Moses, it is about being different. When Moses descends the mountain, his face is shining. The people of Israel immediately recognize this as proof that he has been in the presence of the Lord, and they are filled with holy fear. And yet they know that through him, they have found favor in God's sight. Yet Moses had no need of this mountaintop experience with God. Moses had known God's presence since the burning bush. The Lord had been with him through the plagues, through the flight, through the pursuit, through the wilderness, had provided food and water and safety, keeping the people of Israel out of dangerous territory. Moses had known God's presence. But the people did. The people needed the mountaintop. And God knew it and pulled out all the stops. Clouds billowing and fire blazing, just so that the people of Israel would know God was with them. In many ways, the story of Jesus' transfiguration is similar to that of Moses. In Matthew 17, we have this short story. Six days later, after Jesus tells his disciples to take up their cross, Jesus took Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus himself alone. The Greek is very specific. Jesus himself alone. And they were coming down the mountain. Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Like Moses, Jesus does not need this encounter with God to strengthen his faith or enter conversation with the Holy One. Just like with Moses, this encounter with God is meant for the people with Jesus. 
It is meant to help them understand, even if just a little bit better, the relationship between God and Jesus. For Peter, James, and John, God is no longer only in the cloud, but face to face with them in their friend. It is the epiphany of all epiphanies, this. So friends, transfiguration is meant to strengthen those people who see for what lay ahead. For the Israelites, it is their time in the wilderness without a home to call their own. For the disciples, it is the passion, the cross and the death to come. For us, these are critical texts as we begin our Lenten journey. Like the Israelites, we will step into our Lenten wilderness in just a few days, wondering if God is still there. Like Jesus, we will face our worst fears and temptations and hope to die to ourselves in order to see God and know, to know that we know that we know that God is here and real and always already with us. Transfiguration aids us in the space between. The space between the way we ought to live and the way we ought to worship. The space between carrying our cross and forgiving those who have sinned against us. We are transfigured in ways large and small, but it is these little transfigurations which interest me most. I doubt my face will ever glow or my black robes be changed to dazzling white. But I do know what it's like to see your faces shine with the love of God. And I do know what it's like to be so moved by someone's act of forgiveness or mercy or grace to be stopped in my tracks, sure that I have seen God face to face. And I know what it's like for someone to send me a letter seemingly out of the blue and be reminded that I am seen and known and loved just as I am. I have seen the face of God and lived. I have been strengthened for the wilderness. I have been made ready for trial. It is these little transfigurations that carry us along when hard times come. Know, friends, that when you spend time in God's presence, when you allow yourselves to be prepared and changed in your prayer, in your study, in your service, in your worship, your face may shine with the light of God's love, and it will change other people. As we prepare for our Lenten journey, focused on the passion of Christ, on facing our fears, let us remember to steal away, to enter the secret place and wait for the Holy One. God will show up, even if we're not sure when. We will be changed, even if we're not sure how. Let us be open, friends, to the kind of change only God can bring. Let us see God's radiance in one another. Let us be not only transformed in our waiting, but also transfigured into a people who look and act and love 
more like God each day. Risking temptation. Well, as I said earlier, welcome to the sixth and final Sunday of Lent. In the week to come, I think we will experience something like, unlike anything we have ever experienced before. A real and present sense of grief and anxiety and foreboding of what Jesus' last week on earth must have been like. This week, we will journey with Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death. We will experience Maundy Thursday in our together yet separateness. We will know what it means to mourn death on Good Friday, to be apart from loved ones when all we want is to flock together. And I hope we will know what it means to yearn for resurrection, for new life, for a different way of being come Easter Sunday. We are in a hard place of that there is no doubt. But one of the things this gospel story tells us is that there have been hard times before and we have survived them. It tells us that no matter what, whether we gather in our sanctuaries or stay safe in our homes, the God who was with Jesus and the disciples then is with us now. This is also the last week of our study of A.J. Levine's Entering the Passion of Jesus, A Beginner's Guide to Holy Week. Over the last six weeks, we have spent time with so many stories from that last week of Jesus's life. While today is often called Palm Sunday, this year we started our series with that story, the story of the righteous entry. We were still meeting together in person then, do you remember? Next, we find Jesus clearing the temple, speaking out against all that is not God's best. We were in the sanctuary together for that week too. Week three, we found Jesus telling stories, and we focused on the story of the widow who gave all she had to follow God. During week four, we spent time with the woman who anointed Jesus' head, what Levine called the First Supper. Last week, we looked at the story of the Last Supper. Today, we will spend our time with Jesus and a few disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. In every one of these stories, Levine has highlighted for us both the history and risk in the tales. The history is where we discover the foundation for the story, that which grounds us in first century Israel-Palestine. It's what helps us understand the culture and mores of the place and time in which Jesus lived his life. The risk is what makes the story more exciting. In some sense, the risk is what makes the story worth telling at all. If all of this was a foregone conclusion, after all, if it were to come to a certain end, why bother? Risk opens our eyes to the real possibility of a great loss or a great reward. And in those moments in the telling of the story, we don't know what the outcome will be. These last weeks, we've watched Jesus risk his reputation, righteous anger, challenge, rejection, the loss of friends, and today he will risk temptation. Since we are so far from that story of the righteous entry and since we cannot gather to wave palms and shout hosannas, we will have Passion Sunday this year. It is so called because it is the point in Jesus's journey in which his passion is on full display. 
It is the place in which Jesus is most fully surrendered to his call. In Mark's Gospel, the garden comes immediately after the Last Supper. If you recall, the last verse of last week's pericope was, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In Mark's Gospel, the leave-taking after the Last Supper is followed by Jesus telling the disciples that they will all become deserters. And Peter protests. Jesus tells Peter pointedly, This very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Still, Peter protests, and the others all agree that they would rather die with Jesus than deny him. This is where we pick up. We will spend our time in the first portion of this story today. So they left the Mount of Olives and went to Gethsemane, which means oil press in Aramaic. Only in John's Gospel is it called a garden. The text tells us that Jesus commanded the disciples to, quote, sit here while I pray. And he took with them Peter and James and John, and he was distressed and agitated. And he spoke to his friends and he said, I'm deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I want, but what you want. So Jesus takes some close friends with him to pray, but feeling so deeply distressed that he couldn't even be present with them, he went on alone. He asked God to remove the cup from him that he might be spared the death he knows is coming. Yet his desires tempered with a recognition of God's will, of seeing through the mission God had given him. Now, I don't know how y'all were taught to pray, but many of us learned a formula that required us to pray for ourselves last, if at all. We're taught that praying for our health or our desires is sinful. But here Jesus does just that. He prays that his life will be spared. Levine writes, Jesus teaches us that we can, when we feel the need, pray for ourselves. As a Jew, he already knew the importance of personal prayer. We need personal prayer to sustain us, to help us find courage, to lament. Jesus provides that example that in, in, in cases of extreme concern, of course, we pray for ourselves. Jesus, the man of sorrows, is deeply grieved even unto death. He prays for God to spare him and, and for God's will to be done in the same breath. I find this deeply cognizant of the reality of the world, that God is faithful, no matter what happens to us. Whether we live or whether we die, we can pray in full recognition that we are held in the love of the Holy One. We can pray in recognition that even though life is hard and death unpredictable, still we want to live. There's beauty in that prayer. There is gratitude. For when we come face to face with our mortality, when we feel that impetus toward life, we honor the God who is the giver of life. It is a holy thing to cry out to God for our own lives. Levine says Gethsemane is Jesus' biggest risk of all. He could have run away. He, couldn't, he could have hidden behind his armed disciples. But he doesn't. Jesus goes off alone and vulnerable and prays. She writes, The risk is knowing that he can save himself 
in choosing not to do so. The text goes on. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake for one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Once And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus asks his dearest friends to stay awake with him while he endures his deep grief, simply to sit and be present with him while he prays. They fail. He pleads with them, tell him he is, telling them he is deeply grieved, but still they sleep while he is in agony. Jesus is depending on them, but they fail. Yet somehow they too will be redeemed in the end. As we have seen, Passion Week is full of stories of risk, tragedy, loss, courage, and even second chances. The unseen risk here, the one we almost always miss, is on God's part. Yes, God could remove the cup. God could stop the arrest, trials, suffering, and death. As Jesus suffers, God suffers too. God is always near the suffering. In fact, God is always near in all our life's experiences. Whether we shout Hosanna and await the one who will free us from tyranny like the people did at the righteous entry. Whether we risk calling out all that keeps people from flourishing like Jesus did in the clearing of the temple. Whether we are giving wholeheartedly of what we have even in lack, like the widow with her coins. Whether we are giving wholeheartedly out of our abundance, like the woman with the alabaster jar at the first supper. Whether we are breaking bread with our best friends, like Jesus at the Passover. Whether we fail our Lord in the garden of temptation, God is there. God is there. God is always already present from our first breath to our last. Romans 8.38 reads, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. That, my friends, is good news. As we walk into these hard and holy days, let us remember that God is near, nearer than our very breath. And let us love boldly with the love of God.